Okay, guys, before we begin this book club, I have a confession to make. I have to come clean, guys. For most of the past 20 years, I didn't even like PayPal. <laughs> so to me, like in the 90s, I started with like BBSs on my father's 386, and then I went to the early web. And so at first, it was totally inconceivable, as Vicini would say, to even like think about sending money online, right? It's just not a thing. But it went so fast to totally normal that I just skipped straight to just complaining about the high fees and the delays and the, the foreign exchange fees right here in Canada was a big thing. On Slashdot and all these sites, people always complaining about PayPal, like freezing their accounts and holding their money hostage and censoring. So to me, PayPal was always kind of like a mini Microsoft, one of the bad guys. So it's quite an achievement for your book, Jimmy, to have made me like care so much and be so interested in this company, at least the early years. And David, how perfect is this book for you? You name your podcast Founders, and the book is literally titled The Founders, right? And you love reading this book about a single founder, and this book has like a dozen of them for you, so it's just perfect for this book club. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having me. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was amazing. What's funny is, and David doesn't know this, we haven't talked about this, is no fewer than five people while I was working on The Founders were like, man, that's a great title. Have you heard this Founders podcast? It's amazing. <laughs> and like all of them were founders, like actual founders of real companies. And all of them were like total David fanboys. <laughs> um, it's funny when you emailed me and you're like, hey, I'm writing this book. And then you graciously offered to send me an advanced copy. I saw the title. I was like, oh, this is perfect. And I think the title is good. But also, I think the subtitle is just as good. The story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. We were talking right before we started recording about the fact that so many of these founders now, in present day, right? So I talked to um, you know a lot of young founders, and I'm kind of jealous that they have access. We talked about this, I think, previously. Like There was no entrepreneurship industry, right? When I started companies when I was younger, you know, 15, 18 years ago. And now these guys, not only they have books, they have YouTube, they have podcasts. And so I'll talk to a lot of like, you know, 20, 21, 24-year-old founders, and they idolize the people that you profiled in this book. And what we, you and I were, sorry, we're just talking about right before we started, it's like, the great thing about your book is that it's like if you just rewind 20 years ago, you realize they were just young guys in their 20s trying to figure it out. You had a great line, Jimmy. I don't want to butcher it. They're like trying to figure out, like hustle their way through or try like how about how, how what's the exact wording that you use? I don't want to butcher it. One thing I did say is like sort of PayPal was a story of basically near failure followed by near failure, right? <laughs> yes. I think I described it as like a four-year odyssey of near failure followed by near failure. And there's this wonderful line that Musk has that he had said, I think it was to me or to another, to another interviewer where he said, it wasn't hard to create PayPal. It was hard to keep it alive, right? And yeah. so you basically have this company that's always operating on the skin of its teeth. But I think that's the lesson. The lesson is there wasn't any special genius. It wasn't like somebody had a great idea and that was it. Like, you know, presto, done. It was a struggle and a fight. And like you said, a hustle to get it done. Actually, it was funny. Hustlers was one of my alternative titles. I had a few alternative titles. Oh, that no. was one of them. <laughs> um, hustling has a like a negative connotation. That's like right. Hustle culture. I think, I don't know if it's in the book or it was my reaction to the book. Because I'm looking at like the show notes of the episode I did on it. But I was like, the book, it says it. And I'm assuming I'm talking about the book. This might be you writing. But it's like, it perfectly captures when they, Musk, Teal, Sachs, Hoffman, Levchin, Raboy, were just hustlers trying to figure it out. And I think that's what you realize, like, oh, like the person you're looking up to and, you know, rightfully so, like they built unbelievable, you talk about this, like the the time, it's crazy how long ago the story of PayPal was, but it's also crazy how much all of the PayPal mafia has achieved since then. Like, it's unbelievable. But I feel like your book is the best encapsulation of the human experience of founders are young. They have an idea that they want to try to do something. They don't know how they're going to do it. And so all the early history of 
not just PayPal, but every single book. And I've read almost 300 biographies of entrepreneurs for the podcast so far. It's like, there's no example. It's like, oh, this guy woke up, had an idea for a company, executed the idea happily ever after. That doesn't exist. It's all very similar to the story that you tell in this fantastic book. But I would argue that this is one of the most extreme stories to actually read and learn from because of the also the time in history. They're literally raising money, and, and you could tell the story better than I can. They're literally raising money at the, at the when the internet bubble is popping. I couldn't have said it better myself. I wrote a whole series of stretches about that because, look, there's, I mean, look, I agree with so much of what you said, and I think there's kind of two things that emerged for me in what you just said. One is a lot of founders who have reached out to me or people at startups who have reached out to me after reading the book have said that it has felt therapeutic to read it. And the reason it has felt, what well, their words, therapeutic, not mine. They said it's felt like therapy. And the reason is because if Max Levchin is anxious about the survival of this startup, if Peter Thiel is nervous that they might not make it three months from now, if Elon Musk doesn't know what is going to happen, then it is actually cousin to and synonymous with all of the anxieties that founders have faced for hundreds of years, right? Or founders in any domain, even writers face this, right? Because you're starting a project from scratch. I would think that the link, no, I know that the link between creative acts and anxiety is very strong. And when you see someone at the highest, who's today at the highest levels experience it, it actually makes it okay to feel that way, right? When they don't know, it's okay for you not to know because they're written about today as, as sort of masters of the universe. Like they run everything. They have a ton of money. They can do whatever they want. They can go wherever they want. But when you discover that there was a period when they were uncertain, it makes uncertainty okay. And I, by the way, I didn't write the book with a moral message. There was no advocacy message. I was trying to tell the story of how the company was created. But what it was created, it was like this bath of anxiety, right? And you can feel it. Like I felt it even when I was interviewing them, when I was reading notes, when I was seeing what was going on in the company. I would read the memories after 9-11. I would read like how crazy the IPO was. And that, I think, has elicited this response from people who are in a similar situation saying, thanks for like not running away from the anxiety because it's what I feel every day when I don't know if I'm going to make payroll next month or I don't know if we're going to achieve product market fit or I don't know if this thing that like I have you know millions of dollars worth of investing, I don't know if it's going to work out. And I think in a weird way, if you can look at somebody who's as smart as David Sachs and he feels like tremendous anxiety about the future of what became PayPal, like $100 billion market cap, household brand name. If he's anxious about that, it makes it totally okay to be anxious about whatever you're working on, right? So that was one thing that that stood out to me from what you said. The other thing is, I don't know about you guys, but when I read biographies, I'm most interested in the kind of early years, like sort of 18 to 28, 18 to 30. And I'm interested in pre-success people because once people become successful, I just think they become actually a lot less interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, and I think there's some truth to that. Like by design, once you achieve that level of sort of wealth or success or fame, you kind of have to like batten down the hatches and put up walls. You can't be as open, especially today, you can't be as open. And so for me, the interesting thing about this story was thanks to them offering their time, a lot of time, I was able to ask them questions about college life and about career decisions and about things that happened when not everything had to be so like manicured and perfect, right? And they might have been talking to me in between meetings with like the Pope and the president and whoever else, right? (laughs) But I noticed that my conversations would go long because it was a time in their lives when like they weren't under assault the way they are. 
And they were able to sort of reflect on some of the bad decisions they made as well as the good ones. And so I think that's like an interesting thing, too, is that this period in their lives, it captures when you can't just throw money at the problem or you don't have a lot of power in whatever sense, you kind of have to like figure it. It's a lot more fun. That's that to me is a lot more fun than most of what, with a few exceptions, that they're working on today, just because like. Everything has to be more like talking pointy and like there have to be executives who make all these decisions. And it's like back then they were just making it up. And it was, as you said, in the crucible of the dot-com bubble bursting, which is one of the craziest times in Internet history. One thing that David was talking about before we started recording, when you say like the earlier years are more interesting, once you become successful, it's very easy to try to package the early years and make a very neat story that makes you look good and that makes it seem all like so obvious and you were genius for seeing it all right but when you read the book about bill gates that was written when bill gates was 34 you get the real version of him at the time right one more interesting thing about the book i think you you write this near the beginning is about how many of the employees that you talk to nobody had ever talked to them about it right it makes me wonder how many great stories are out there and nobody's writing them. Nobody's finding these people. Even companies that we associate with a single founder, like how many people were in the shadows doing super important things and nobody ever told their stories. What's interesting about PayPal is that it came so close to dying so many times and almost every time it's someone different that saved them, right? It's like you remove just one of the pieces and the whole Django tower falls down. Mm -hmm. And it's a very special company in that way in that it's not like, okay, there's not a, I think you you write this line somewhere, like there's not a Bezos or a Gates or a Steve Jobs, right? There's this group of people and the group dynamic is more interesting in many ways because most of us are not Gates or Bezos, but most of us can, you know, find other people to complement our skills. I do want to mention one thing that jumped out when Jimmy was just speaking that I think is unique. And actually, the first time I realized this, I saw this because I read a bunch like military history. And the craziest thing is like when you go back and you read like these autobiographies of people that literally served in combat, like they watched their friends get killed. They went through unbelievably like horrible experiences. They will all say very similar things. They're like, oh, that's the best job I ever had. I missed the time where, like, obviously they don't want their friends to die, they don't want that to happen, but they look back. There's something to human nature. There's a line in your book that comes from the introduction that I actually put on my notes that I wanted to bring up, and perfectly in line with what you just said. They're looking back, I think, at the very beginning of the book, you start off, I think the first word in the book is fuck. If it I'm is. Not <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it's yeah. you're interviewing Elon, and he, he like, you, you schedule like an there, hour there goes, there goes the Pulitzer boys. Like. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I thought it was excellent. And so you, you start, he's like, I had an hour scheduled. We're talking for three hours. Then he's like, he's walking out, but he's like, I cannot believe this was, you know, 20 years ago, kind of looking back with like fondness. And a few pages later, it says several said all that you're interviewing, like a ton of people who work to PayPal, not just Elon. He said several said that they did their life's finest work during this period. And there's a quote from one. I felt like I was part of something grand and I've never had that before. And I think that experience is obviously combat is the most extreme environment that a human being could be in but these intense difficult what at the time is very painful and uncomfortable if you are able to work your way through it you're going to look back at those points of your life with like you're very satisfied that your younger version of yourself actually went through and persevered and got to the other side of it yeah i heard that dozens of times i mean no joke it was just person after person who said it would always come in a couplet some kind of couplet and the first part of it was boy, man, I've never worked harder. And then the second part of the couplet was, it was also the best work I've ever done. I had people tell me, 
and I think I wrote this in the book, somebody said it was the best team I'd ever worked with. And like, and by the way, they've like, they're employed now, they've had other teams, right? And they're <laughs> saying best team I ever worked with bar none. I had somebody else say it set the standard for every kind of team that I worked with in the future. Like one guy was just like, I just assumed everybody would be good, like next level good, you know? And then the other part of it is someone said, because of how hard it was, the bonds of friendship were much stronger. Almost like they went to war. Yeah, like there's a direct relationship between the difficulty and the strength of the bonds. Not in every case, and there are still some rivalries within this group, but the friendships that do exist, I mean, they've lasted 20 years. And we're not just talking like friendships like you get together for coffee every now and again. I'll tell you a story. It's not in the book. I was interviewing Luke Nosek, who was one of the early employees, early co-founder. Luke today is like a head of this fund called Gigafund. He's done very well. He is a very early investor and advocate for SpaceX. I believe he still serves on the board. Luke and I were talking. We had like really great interviews. He's a really thoughtful guy. He's got a wide range of interests. And at one point during the interview, his phone starts to ring. And it's happened to happen. Like it wasn't blowing up all the time, but his phone starts to ring. And he holds it up and it's Ken Howery, somebody that he had first connected with 20 years ago while working at PayPal. And I don't remember the exact comment he made to me, but he said something like, see, like he sort of was like proving, it was like a proof point. And he said something like, these are still the people that I am closest to. They are still the people I work with. And I'm going to go into the other room to take this phone call now, but I wanted you to see this. right? <laughs> and, and it's like, it was insane to me. And then even crazier, and I don't think I've really shared this publicly before. When I ended that Musk interview, and I didn't write this in the book, but this is like why people should listen to Liberty's podcast. Please listen. It's amazing. <laughs> behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, behind the music, behind the book. Um, I finished with Elon and I was getting up and we we're just chatting and he continued to talk about PayPal. And then at some point he goes, huh? Because uh, I said, like, I'm sure like, we had spent a lot of time together. I'm like, I'm sure you got things to do. You know, busy guy. I want to like not be one of those people who just hangs around. And he goes, oh, here's something funny. We're having a dinner party tonight. And the dinner guest is Peter Thiel. Hmm. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like on the day that I had spent like, you know, four hours picking his brain about PayPal, he is still having dinner that evening, that evening with the person that he connected with all those years ago, right? And so it's this interesting thing that I think part of the reason for the endurance of those friendships and relationships is because the thing they did was really brutally hard, building this company together through the crucible of the dot-com bubble bursting. I could go on and on about the friendships and the investments, and everybody kind of knows it because they know the PayPal mafia. What they don't realize is that that wasn't accidental and it wasn't casual. It wasn't like just random water cooler talk. It was feeling like they actually survived while all of these other dot-coms were going under, and everybody felt like they had a piece of that, right? And that's really interesting to me. Like, it was like one of the things that I was like, wow, like, you guys all still stay in touch and communicate regularly. They go to weddings. They go to, you know, people have been through highs and lows. There have been deaths. There have been, you know, random occurrences where they'll reconnect. But I think the thing that forged those relationships is this insane basically seven days a week for four years, four plus years of building this company. And I think it raised the question, right? Are all those people so successful and so talented because PayPal identified them or did PayPal create them, right? And I think the book touches on this and, and tries to answer it kind of like in both directions because there's probably some of both. But I'm curious, what's your behind the scenes opinion on this, right? Do, do you think it was this weird process where, you know, they were asking Matt quizzes and the interviews and like... There's a part where it talks about one of the skills that Peter Thiel had at the time and still has probably is he just doesn't care at all about most things about someone like on the social side, like you can dress however you want, you can have weird hobbies, you can play video games until three in the morning or whatever. But all he cares about is like how smart and talented you are, right? Was it that this company was able to filter people in a way that got 
the most talented people, while other companies were you know, filtering out these people because they didn't fit the usual profile. There's a part of the book where the company is taking advertisement in some student paper in Stanford to try to make students drop out and come work for PayPal, right? That Teal's He's still running with that, with the Teal mm -hmm. Fellowships, right? So I'm curious what you think about this, like making talent versus identifying it. Yeah, and the answer is is actually easier than you might think. I mean, I, there's some texture to it, and I welcome David's thoughts here too, but it's both. So it's both nature and nurture, meaning like attracts like, and so you have this kind of quality of like the people that are friends with the people we just named, you know, Keith Raboy, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, David Sachs, etc, etc. They are all very smart people, right? So like to be friends with them, the kind of prerequisite if you're in your 20s and you're around them is like, they didn't really hang around with slouches, you know, <laughs> um, and sort of like attracts like, like their friends were very, very smart. And they were what I would say is, you know, I had a couple moments now that I'm thinking about it. This is, all, this is why these are always fun, because I get to think about the stuff that I experienced. Max Levchin, I asked him to talk about Elon because, you know, they didn't have always the best relationship at PayPal. They actually came into loggerheads at one point. And he said, you know, and this is in the book, he's like, I could tell this guy was crazy, but he was also really, really <laughs> smart. And I love really smart people. And it was said with such sincerity, like he was not BSing because let's be clear, Max Levchin is also insanely smart. And so they, I think, intuitively were always looking for people who are just that smart, Right. And I will tell you that the process of doing this book was an exercise for me of being really, really, really anxious about that. And here's why. Because I always felt, and I've, you know, like try to hold my own, I always felt like I was like a B student in the room with A students constantly, all the time. These are photographic memories and chess champions and physicists and all the rest. But if you think about the friend group, so I'll call that the nature part of it. Like attracts like, they were around and wanted people around who were that intense and that smart. And they were not, by the way, not all smart in the same ways. Sometimes smart in really like different ways, but very, very, very intelligent people. So that's like sort of the nature part. And there was, as the company grew, obviously these filters changed. But at the beginning, if you look at the IQ points in the room, I had this experience. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you all, but when I was doing the interviews for the book, the crazy thing was how many people would say a name and say something like, let's say it's Joe, like Joe, like, oh, smartest person I've ever met. And then I would interview Joe and Joe would be like, Max, smartest person I ever met. And like, it was a different name every time. It wasn't like all of them were saying like, oh, it's Elon or oh, it's Peter. It was a different name. Max, Max himself, because Max is really smart and has a photographic memory. And I remember him saying to me, Russ Simmons, man, off the charts, outlier IQ, like so crazy. And he said, it's in the book. He said, he can solve anything you give to him in half the time it would take another person to do it. And that's like max, you know? And so you're sort of like, whoa, like how big must this intellect be, right? That happened over and over again. So there's a quality of like, yes, they sort of pre-selected for these types. That said, they weren't all just sitting on a beach together. They were trying to build a company while money was running out, fraud was running rampant. There was no much more capital to raise in the U.S., and they had to figure it out, figure out how to fight fraud, figure out how to keep costs down, figure out how to get the company's model built, and then bring it to profitability, have it IPO, have it sold to eBay. So the interesting thing is you have this very kind of very bright group of people, and they are put through the ringer, in some ways, the ultimate Silicon Valley ringer. Like People forget just how bad 2000 was. 86% of the NASDAQ is wiped out. Companies that are buying Super Bowl ads are gone by the end of the year. 
there were physically like storefront windows boarded up in Palo Alto, right? And there's this site called Fucked Company. One of the things that came up in the interview, I didn't, I'd never heard about this until I did these interviews. Somebody's like, have you ever heard of Fucked Company? I was like, what's that? And they're like, oh, it's, it was this site that was cataloging all of the problems and dot coms that were shutting down. And this one person was like, yeah, we would look at Fucked Company every day. And I was just waiting for like PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> PayPal. Oh, that's it. It's over. And because they were that nervous about it. So your question, this is a long answer to your question, but the question was, was it the people or was it the time and the setting and the place? And the answer, the right answer is it was both. And that is actually important for people to remember because they have a massively talented group of people, but they're not getting together and playing bridge. Like they're getting together and building a company under duress. And then is it any wonder that YouTube comes out of this group or Yelp comes out of this group or Palantir or SpaceX or Tesla or Matterport or any of the other company, you know, dozens and dozens? They learned the playbook for how to build companies at this place. And I had an intuition about this at the start of the book process. I became convinced of it as I went through. Because the more of these people I met, again, people that don't make headlines, I said to myself, wow, you guys are all, you're exactly alike. In so many ways, these people were very, very, very similar. I have to share a few quick vignettes from the book because I'm sure some people are listening to this and they haven't read it yet. So I want to make you read it. I have a few things in my notes that kind of illustrate what Jimmy's talking about, about how smart and kind of obsessive they are about what they were doing, right? There's something about how I think it was Max Levchin got a girlfriend at some point somehow. And she found him locked in the bathroom coding on his laptop, right? That That's like any moment he could find, he was just thinking about coding. Like back in Soviet Russia, he was coding on paper because he didn't have enough computer time. Uh, there was a scene on the IPO day, right? They're celebrating in the parking lot. And like Peter Thiel is playing 10 games of speed chess at the same time, right? And he's winning all of them except one to David Sachs, I think. And then they made him do keg stands. Uh, there's a scene where they're hiring Luke Nosek and they're like, what's he going to do? And he's like, he's just going to do Luke things. And what is that? In any other company, you couldn't find a, a role for that, right? Write it out. Oh, he's there on the org chart. But what PayPal figured out was that Luke is the guy who finds like counterintuitive ideas. He finds loopholes and everything. He's the guy who's just walking around and generating ideas, great ideas all the time. And PayPal was set up in such a way that they could recognize that and find a, a position for him, right? That's the kind of company that they were that's, that's like, that's not a normal company. There's a couple things in the book that I notice that are just reoccurring themes in like my own work as I try to like document like the history of entrepreneurship on Founders Podcast. One is that belief comes before ability. Hmm. I love the fact that you brought up Luke because one of my favorite just random paragraphs in the book is the fact that way before, none of these guys could say they're successful at the time. They're, there's like Luke, Peter, Teal, and I forgot the other two guys. They'd meet up for breakfast, right? And they talk about like technology. They talk about philosophy, investing, all the stuff they're interested, right? They're not wealthy, but they knew they knew they'd be successful because what they called it they called it the billionaires breakfast club mm-hmm. this is like 1997 <laughs> right like i think it ties into like liberty's question to you it's like well was it like did they create the talent did they discover the talent did they just pick people correctly it's like well first of all you just said like a players want to be around other a players that's a very old idea i remember one of my uh, i just did this uh, q and a episode and people ask, like, if you could have, like, a board of directors from all the people you've covered, like, these people that are going to advise you personally to, like, help you achieve what you want to achieve in your career, like, who would you choose? And I went through all the episodes. I was trying to figure this out, and I, I wanted to only focus on people that are dead. And surprisingly, who made the list for me was Mozart. And mm. Mozart was interesting. One, the ability to get to talk to somebody that's literally the best in the world at what they're doing. You know, Tiger Woods started playing golf at two. Mozart started composing at two, right? 
But there's all these other characteristics that Mozart shares that are interesting to me. But what's also interesting is in his biography, it's like he would go and want to talk to other people at the top of their profession outside of his profession. He, mm. Like not other composers per se, like whatever it was that you did that you got to be the best in the world at. And I think that is very common. That ties together with something. I think we talked about this. I know, actually, I'm almost positive we talked about this when, on our last podcast together when we discussed Jimmy's fantastic book about Claude Shannon. And this is an idea me and Liberty, I think, have brought up a few times. We might have even talked about with Jim on Infinite Loops, is the idea that you mentioned in the introduction, senius. Yes. And to me, you know, you could define it, you know, as a collective intelligence of like a group or this area that you happen to be in. To me, when I write senius, I'm like, okay, it's a concept that describes why it's so important on getting yourself around other driven, ambitious people with similar interests. Mm. So you go back, and Jimmy can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to send money over the internet, right? They're like, we're interested in technology. We're interested in startups. We're interested in getting wealthy, right? Like investing, making more money. And those interests, because they're around other people with similar interests, that is what birth, what eventually becomes PayPal, it's not that they had this, oh, we have this one big problem we have to solve no matter what. It's like, no, 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 we're just interested in all this other stuff. Let's meet together. Let's have breakfast. Let's give these talks. I think uh, you mentioned the book, The First Time Max Met Peter Thiel at Stanford. He's like giving some kind of like conference. There's like almost nobody there, like a talk. And he's like, listen, if I ever do anything, th- this guy may not be a programmer, but he's a nerd just like I am. Mm-hmm. And so I think this this is something that like appears over and over again in the biography as I read. This is something that I'm like part of the reason I want to do Founders. Is obviously I'm interested in reading and in history and entrepreneurship and podcasts. It's like, but it's also a way for me to meet other people mm. that are like me. And it's not like I'm sending them a message like, hey, I'm David. I have the same interest as you. Can we get together for coffee? That's probably, you know, a very low probability event that that's going to happen. But if they discover the podcast or if somebody else sends it to them, it's like, oh, this dude's fucking crazy just like you are. Listen to this. Like then it turns, instead of me having to send outbound messages, it all becomes inbound, you know, because like you have a body of work to point to. We were talking right before we recorded. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I do know I'm going to eventually have to build something where there's like a, a way for the people listen to founders to gather together in person. Mm. Like, because it's so important to get into your seniors and to get into around other people that have the same interest in you because you have no idea. You discussed earlier, it's like, it could lead to not only personal friends, but they're all investing in the same companies. Like, how many fucking PayPal mafia invested in SpaceX? Like, a ton of them. You know what I mean? Like, it could lead to friendships. It could lead to investment opportunities. It could lead to co-founder relationships in the future. And you're doing yourself your disservice if you, first of all, don't f- figure out, okay, what is my seniors? And then, two, do the work necessary so you can access it. Yeah. It's creating creative relationships. We have a bunch of like social relationships all around us. And most of them are like, we talk about the weather, we have small talk, we have our friends, our family. But now, especially in the connected world, people with similar interests have a way to find themselves. And these relationships are different because they create stuff. They create podcasts, they create companies, they create technologies, they create art. But creating more of these relationships is one of the best things that's happened in the modern internet world. And these types of events, like I'm there, like do it, David. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll make the trip for sure. I would say, let me add a couple of, of just additional things in support of literally every word you said. They were not all the same kind of person, right? So this is really important because there's some people who are like, well, I'm not a programmer and I'm not some math wizard. Neither was Ken Howry. But he had a passion for business. He really liked the work that Peter was doing, wanted to work with him. And 
Ken would do anything. Like the thing in the book that was interesting is how many people are like, man, Ken gets enthusiastic about any project you give him, you know, um, and he'll do it with a smile on his face. And it doesn't mean that he was a slouch because he wasn't. He was intellectually very, very bright. But it was not that you need to be the same person as these people. On the point about friendship and seniors, the interesting thing that I've found is, I mean, there's so much you said we could riff on. Like, it's so fun. The friends I have who are creating things, the friendship accelerates very quickly. When I have met them, let's say in my early 30s, it did not take 20 years of going to school together to stay friends. It took like maybe a coffee. And right away, I'm like, number one, you're making things in the world. Number two, you know what a struggle it is to make things in the world. Number three, you protect your time and your health in order to serve making things in the world. Number four, you get it. You get the anxieties, the fears, the challenge, the joy, all the highs, all the lows. And it turns out that over time, like those friendships just like compound better because you're not even leaning on them for favors or anything. It's just that when you're together, it is a qualitatively different relationship than it is with people who maybe you were friends with back in the day, right? Who are just friends by virtue of like your dorm rooms or side by side or something, right? But my friends who are like in totally different fields, like my friend who's an artist, he gets it. He just knows. He knows what he knows the fear. He sort of knows what that thing is. Where you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, another another painting, you know. And that's like why I think the three of us are friends. Like once you find those people, the friendships, I think they just shortcut all the like the BS, you know. Like like it's sort of like we sometimes like I mean I don't know anything about your family relationships, your like any of that. But we have such a strong wavelength on these things, and I think there was something about that in the water at PayPal. Not for everybody, and particularly as the company expands, it's not like everybody's doing that. But I think you're right, David, that early on, these are people who are drawn together by common interests, a sense of sort of endurance, a willingness to work hard, and not a precise plan for a startup that's going to become PayPal. More of a, we really think these other people are smart and we think they're onto something. Let's just spend time together and something will emerge from that time together. And if you think about who's around that whiteboard, you know, it's Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn. It's Russ Simmons, co-founder of Yelp, you know, Max Levchin. And so there's something about like the generative capacity of a group like that that's independent of having to work in a startup together. And I think people try to replicate these things in different ways. But your point is spot on that at the beginning, no one could have said, hey, Luke is going to like stay friends with this guy named Elon. And Elon's going to do this company called SpaceX. And Peter, I want you to back SpaceX. And then I'll back SpaceX. And we'll all back. You know, that was like such a that wasn't even like they couldn't have called it if they tried. But they happen to be in that place at that time and develop these relationships, again, independent of any kind of work context. Peter Thiel actually writes about this in Zero to One, too. He says he calls it prehistory. Like, prehistory is important. He's often sussing out prehistory in a startup team before he invests. How well do they know each other outside of the startup? How strong are those bonds of trust that don't exist on, like, did you get your report done? You know, His idea on that is actually really important because speed matters in business. That's a main theme in history of entrepreneurship. And his point is like, if you have a strong prehistory for your co-founders, it's like you already have a web of trust and that trust allows you to work faster. And in a startup, you have to work faster. I just reread Peter's book, but the episode I did on it was interesting because it's like the second or third time I read it. But I just spent like three weeks reading all of Paul Graham's essays. And what's fascinating is, actually, it's Patrick from Invest Like the Best made this point when I was talking to him. He actually gave me the, the idea where we were talking about, um, I had already, I think, released the first episode on Paul Graham. And, you know, I would argue that the two most influential written texts for technology startups in the last, you know, 15 years is Paul Graham's essays and Zero to One, right? It's yeah. like, you're going to, it's yeah. very hard to find a startup founder hasn't read both, right? And so I was like, oh, that's actually a good idea. Let me reread Peter's book in line with what I just downloaded into my brain about Paul Graham's philosophy. And what's crazy is 
you get to that part in the book, the one that you just referenced, and Paul Graham had written, he's like, the prehistory of the founding relationship is why, if you look at the application on YC, we ask about the co-founder relationship more than the idea. So I do, again, mm. this goes to the senior idea. This goes to the idea of, hey, make sure you're doing the work necessary to make yourself into a formidable person so other people would actually seek you out and think that you can contribute and you're valuable. I want to tie something else though, that you said earlier. I heard the same thing where you're like, I can't tell you how many people have read the book and they said this is therapeutic. Mm. That's the word you used. The feedback I get is like, I find listening to your podcast comforting. Mm. And it's because you see all these really smart, really accomplished people struggle. And when I read the founders, right, and I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this is one of the best documentations of how of, it shows the messiness of creating a new company, right? You just mentioned Reed Hoffman. One of my favorite parts of the book is like, so the messiness of new companies, like PayPal's got all these problems, right? One of them is that they're losing a ton of money. <laughs> and so Reed has this great analogy or metaphor in the book. He's like, dude, we were burning so much money. It'd be like, if you stood on the top of our building and threw wads of $100 bills off the side, like we were burning money faster than that. And so now they're losing money. But before that, they don't even know what product they should build. And when they do figure out what product they should build, they don't know what they should call it. They're not sure who the right people are to have in the company. And they're not sure who. And you think about how many freaking different CEOs and leaders they go through, right? Starting with X.com and Cofinity. It's like, not only are they not sure who the right people on the team are supposed to be, they're not sure who the right person to lead that team is. And out of that messy, chaotic experience comes one of the greatest like startup mafias that the world has ever seen. And you make the point in the book, and I wrote in my copy that I have, nailed it. And I put in uh, exclamation points and underlines. And it's from this. It's like, to skip PayPal's creation is to neglect the most interesting stuff about its founders. It is to miss the defining experience of their early professional lives. The one that defined so much that came later. That is not unique to Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, any of these people. It's everybody. One of my favorite books and one of, I think, uh, the greatest autobiographies ever written by an entrepreneur, if you think how many people have read it, but also how many people inspired people like Jeff Bezos, is Sam Walton's autobiography, mm. Made in America. And the crazy thing is, like, people are like, oh, yeah, Sam was kind of old, you know, when he started Walmart. He's like 44. It's like, yeah, but you're missing out. He even says in the book, people skip over the 15 years when he was building a very successful retail operation, it wasn't the same idea of Walmart, right? And he's like, they skip out because Walmart's such a, a massive success. He's like, but those lessons I learned in those 15 years, and after 15 years, the company was only doing like, I think one and a half million in revenue. You know, this is a long time ago, but like he wasn't getting rich off this, but he wasn't like a poor, broke person. And he's like, there's so many lessons in that 15 year period that if I didn't go through, there is no fucking Walmart. And I think that line that you have in the book is exactly if they never went through this experience with PayPal, the idea that there's a Tesla, a SpaceX, a Palantir, all these other things, a founder's fund. Yeah, maybe, but most likely not. And certainly I think they would agree not to the degree and like the outside success that they have now, because even Palantir, you mentioned zero to one. He talked about the fact, and you talk about in detail, they had a huge problem in the book. Like they can't solve the fraud. Max has got to figure out, is it Igor? Is that the... Am I remembering it's that correctly? Igor, Igor okay. is the first, and then there's others, but Igor is the key one. They take that idea for Igor, fraud detection and like on massive amounts of data and everything. And he's like, oh, I'm going to use this combination of man and machine for Palantir. He says that explicitly. And so that, like, that, I think that's a perfect, a perfect reason why that sentence is so important. And you put it right at the beginning of the book where it's like, hey, pay attention. This stuff is going to be important later, but you can't skip over the, the beginning part or you're not going to fundamentally understand why everything turned out the way it did. 
And I think normally the way that people from the outside looking in treat the PayPal story is, oh, that's where they made a little bit of money and then turned it into bigger and bigger and bigger piles of money. But the equity was so diluted by the time the company IPO'd, very few people had sort of like otherworldly multi-generational wealth at the end of it, right? There were too many investors, too many people on the cap table, too much equity distributed to employees in a good way, meaning that was like something that Max and Peter did pretty regularly. But it meant that nobody was like, one person put it, we didn't make retirement money, some of us made down payment money, right? So it was like enough to like make a down payment, but we still all had to work. And so usually the story is construed as like, oh, PayPal is what funded Tesla and SpaceX. And it's like, "Mm, no, actually, PayPal was a place where many ideas about creating companies were tested. Many different iterations and permutations of things you would try to achieve product market fit were tested. And everybody involved learned those things. Here's a perfect example, by the way, just so you don't think I'm speaking abstractly. This was literally relayed to me by one of the co-founders of YouTube. And I I didn't put it in the book because there wasn't room because the book is already getting a little long. So PayPal, one of the reasons for its success is it's a button that proliferates around the internet, right? It's an embed button. It's one of the first truly successful embedding strategies around, right? The next big one, one of them is YouTube. So YouTube, if you think about it, YouTube can live on any website. It can live on any platform and all the views accrue back to the original video, right? But that actually like was rare in that moment that what you would do is not own the video player and make it a walled garden, that you would actually make it an embeddable widget that could go anywhere. Widgets were still super new. The web is still super in its infancy. Still, a lot of people have dial-up modems. When YouTube started to try to proliferate on MySpace, they ran into the teeth of MySpace. And the MySpace people, this is like Tom, that famous like Tom of MySpace. <laughs> I don't know if it was Tom, but somebody at MySpace was like, this is insane. We can't have this video player embed on our freaking page. We don't know what this is. We haven't approved it. You know, all the reasons, all the objections. So they like take steps to shut YouTube down on MySpace. And what the YouTube co-founders had learned from the PayPal experience is that if you get a platform's own users angry enough, they will revolt against the platform and force policy changes. So the YouTube co-founders essentially put up the customer service phone number for MySpace in as many places as they could. They told all the MySpace, like all the people who saw it from MySpace, like just call and complain, like jam up their phone lines. They put up the email address and they were like, just tell them they've got to accept YouTube videos. And what do you know? They accepted YouTube videos and like YouTube was allowed to proliferate on MySpace and then grew to other places. That strategy, chapter and verse, came from PayPal because PayPal had the same problem with eBay. And they knew if they could become sticky enough with eBay's own users, then they could turn eBay's own users against the platform itself. And they mimicked that exact playbook. I mean, word for word almost. And so it is incredible. Your point isn't abstract. It's not like, oh, we had some general learnings about how to do startups. No, no, no. Like literally the embed strategy and how to turn users into mutineers was like homegrown at PayPal and then ported over to YouTube. I wonder if PayPal, because I know Elon and a bunch of others love to study biographies and histories and other business people. I wonder if they learned that from John Malone, because John Malone used Mm -hmm. to do that when they had cable negotiations. And when the channel asked for too much money, they do a blackout (laughs) in the region. And on the screen, there was like, please call this number to complain, right? And then they got the actual users, the viewers to complain and get the problem resolved in their favor, basically. About what you were saying earlier about how people are like, oh, yeah, they made the money there. And that's what allowed them to do the rest, right? We can't do it, but it would be super interesting to do a kind of alternate histories where on one side you have the exact same people, the same group of people that have the experience of PayPal, of running it, of building it, but they don't get any money at the end. And then you look what happens. And on the other side, you give the exact same people 
all of the same money that they got from PayPal, but they don't have the experience, right? They only get a check and then you see what happens. And I, I bet that almost in any case, the first group with the experience would do so much better. Maybe Tesla and SpaceX and all these other companies would exist. Maybe it would be harder. Maybe they would have run out of money or something. But I think it really was the experience that built it, right? The money is just kind of like extra fuel to do the next thing. But, you know, really good entrepreneurs with a good track record, they can find the fuel elsewhere if they don't have it. Like Elon didn't have to put 13 of his own millions into X.com, right? People would have funded him, but he's just that kind of person, right? You mentioned something I was reading earlier where it's like, oh, that's another interesting lesson about human nature, really. It's like it helped with recruiting the fact that Elon had so much skin in the game. It's like yeah. somebody said, it's like, I think he used that exact line. He's like, oh, he put 13 million of his own money in there. He's not going to let this thing fail. Let me go and actually join him. That popped to mind when Liberty was uh, just mentioned that. I would say that the reason that this story was easy to overlook and that the details were sort of shrouded is because understandably, when you're operating as like in the billionaire world later, like pretty much everything gets colored by that. If you're doing rockets and cars, you know, like you're going to miss all these lessons and all these moments. But to me, the interesting thing is also that when you learn to weather this kind of difficulty, you kind of assume it's going to be a part of whatever startup you do, you do next. You know, so like here's a great example. At one point, X.com gets defrauded in a pretty public way. And there's a bunch of bad headlines because they had made it easy for people to take money out of checking accounts, just like with a few numbers. And Elon's very worried about this. Julie Anderson, who was working at the company, was very worried about this. It was a scary moment. I mean, it was big national publications just dumping all over X.com. And I will say, when I went back and read all of those reports, the same people were quoted. It seemed almost more petty and personal than like actually, like there was a real problem, but the tone of it suggested somebody had like kind of coordinated or like found some way to coordinate. The interesting thing is that they take all this heat for like being easy to defraud and they have more users at the end of that process than they did at the start, right? And so you, <laughs> think, you think about what that might've taught maybe Elon, but others about negative press. PayPal or Confinity was named like one of the 10 worst business ideas of 1999, right? At one point, just before the IPO of a company that, again, is still around today and worth $100 billion, they wrote that the world needs PayPal as a public company the way it needs an anthrax epidemic, right? <laughs> and so like part of what I kind of took from this was also a series of learnings around how to deal with negativity, how to deal with fraud, how to deal with a fractious work environment, right? There's this amazing moment. I didn't really share it. This is like more meta. I was interviewing Elon and there's a moment very early in the story where they try to dump him as CEO, these sort of handful of people that he hires super early on. I talked to him about it, and it was a really short period in the history. It's probably like three, four months early in the history. And I remember, I'll never forget it, because I remember sitting there, and he's sitting there, and he's sort of reflecting on it very briefly, like so briefly. And he just waves his hand, like so almost like, like sort of like when Obi-Wan does, the, like, these aren't the droids you're looking for, right? <laughs> he just sort of waves his hand and looks off. He doesn't even look at me. He just looks off. He's like, eh, there's always drama in startups. And it was like this, it was like a sentence that captured so much, like such an emotionally fraught thing, where he was just like, eh, there's always drama in startups, right? And it was one of these things where you're sort of sitting there like, wow, like you have earned the right based on your experiences to say that so casually, because the drama that you've experienced is like colossal, multi, you know, multi-million, multi-billion dollar drama. And the bets you have placed have been so big. But to me, part of what happened is that it took what is like a neat and tidy web application that we use every day. And because I, again, worked really hard, found all these emails, et cetera, I was able to stitch together just how hard it was to do and how dramatic these settings can be. 
And I think that's like something that's super underappreciated. Like we see Elon go on SNL. We do not see the Elon who has to face like one possible coup and then another actual coup, right? We see like Max Levchin, the public company founder of a firm. We don't see Max almost quit PayPal because of Elon, right? I always now have a better appreciation for the blood and guts of these of these sorts of stories. And the book goes into how all this drama, at the end of the day, the company is put above it, right? Elon, after there's a coup and they oust him, some employees are on his side and they come to him and they're like, do you want us to, you know, resign in mass or do something? And Elon's like, no, no, no. Like, I think you explained it with the King Solomon story, mm -hmm. right? Two women claiming the baby is theirs and like cut the baby in half. And the PayPal is still Elon's baby, even after they've done all kinds of things to him, right? That someone else, someone pettier or someone like... I don't know, less invested in the company would have just tried to burn the whole thing down just to get back at those people. Also, some of the people who did this coup against him, like, as you were saying, they're still friends today. They're still hanging out and doing dinners and investing in each other's companies. And so it's like, it's Elon seemed to respect that the others did it because they thought it was the best decision for the company, not as a personal thing. And that's probably a hard thing on a human nature point of view. It's not an easy thing to do. When you said that story, I, that's another line that I reread to prepare for this podcast, where it's like, well, at the end, X.com actually has more users after the fact. It made me think of this. There's a great line. I just read this book. It was recommended to me by our friend Eric Jorgensen, who wrote the fantastic book, The Almanac of All. And it's called like something like I did a podcast on. It. I should know the freaking title. <laughs> I, I titled the podcast Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett speaking directly to you because that was my interpretation of the book. It's something like, tell me where I'm going to die so I never go there. It's written by this guy named Peter Bevelin, who's written a bunch of books on Charlie and um, Warren. But in that book, Charlie says something that's fantastic. He's like, learning from history is a form of leverage. And I was like, oh, that's a freaking, you know, Charlie's gifted with words and, and just taking a very complex idea and putting it into a short amount of, uh, short amount of words so you can remember it. And I got to that part and I had a similar thought to you where it's like Elon is is a master salesman. He's a master getting attention. Like, think about how valuable SpaceX and Tesla are and how much have they spent on advertising? Nothing, right? And we saw this, unfortunately, like the idea that human nature doesn't change. That is happening, you know, 20 years, over 20 years ago. I was listening to Joe Rogan speak on another podcast that was very interesting because he was talking about the fact that, you know, people thought, oh, they're going to cancel him. This thing came out where he had said the N-word a bunch of times. I don't think he was saying it directly. Like, he was, like, referencing, like, other people saying it, or I might be wrong about that. But anyway, somebody had, like, strung together him saying it, like, a bunch of times. That video went viral. People went crazy. And they tried to get him kicked off Spotify. And Joe was like, at the end of this, this is now on the other side of that big catastrophe. He's like, we because Spotify has access to the people listening, which is not normal on podcasts, right? It's a closed ecosystem, so they can actually tell you how many people are actually listening as opposed to like how many downloads you get on an RSS feed. He's like, our subscriber count went up by 2 million. <laughs> and so the reason this is important wow. is because it goes against, like you mentioned, like the snarkiness of people like writing, you know, anytime somebody has a level of success, there's a percentage of humanity that are just going to discount it. They're going to make excuses for it. I'm going to tie this back together in one second. But I had mentioned before we started recording, I found this biography. It was recommended to me by Matt, the CEO of Colossus, of Ralph Lauren that came out in 1988. And I took a picture and I, I've got to figure out how to like, I was going to tweet this out. I was like, oh, I don't want to start shit though. It's talking about like, a lot of people don't know. It's like Ralph Lauren grew up poor. He had to share a single bedroom with two older brothers. When he starts his company, he's married. He's living in a crappy apartment in New York City. 
they don't have any furniture. They just have a mattress on the floor and they have the L train that like they can't sleep because it's fucking running against their like the train is right next to their apartment. And 20 years later, Ralph Lauren is one of the wealthiest self-made people in the United States. He's built an unbelievable amount of business. That's a multi-billion dollar company. And there's a line in this book. Remember, like history doesn't repeat human nature does. He says to this day, there are people walking around saying Ralph Lauren isn't that special. I could have done it. This is a guy that Ralph fired. And he's like, think about how crazy what I'm about to tell you. The guy that's that's saying this was fired by Ralph, right? He's like, there's people, you know, walking around saying Ralph isn't that special. I could have done it. It's the weirdest thing. They couldn't be more wrong. Ralph is the most special guy in the apparel business. The guy saying that about Ralph was fired by Ralph. He's like, you're out of your mind if you think you could do that. So I do think one thing uh, that I'm always amazed at is like people don't understand the power of the internet, right? Because it goes against, there is a part of human nature that we just, and I think us three fight against it. I've never seen you guys tweet like talking shit about other people, right? Or we probably wouldn't be friends because like those are not the people I want to hang out with. But I always say it's like the world has no shortage of critics. We have a shortage of evangelists. And when people don't understand, it's like when you tweet about something or you post about something, you talk about, you make a TikTok about something you don't like, you're just getting them more fans. Because yes, some percentage of people will see your TikTok or your tweet and be like, yeah, screw that guy. But other percent will be like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know what that is. Oh, I'll, I'll start listening to that podcast or I'll start watching that movie or whatever. It's like, so the key is ignore, like you have to starve the things you don't like of oxygen, which is just attention on the internet and feed the things you do like. Talk about the movies you love, the books you love, the podcasts you like, the people you like, and that'll help them more attention be drawn on them. Humans cannot do this. They're like, do an article, let's take down Elon. He only gets stronger. <laughs> like that's not working. <laughs> He's like a Sith yeah. Lord. It's right? like Obi-Wan. When, when Darth Vader strikes Obi-Wan down with the lightsaber, Obi-Wan's freaking everywhere after that because he's learned that whole force <laughs> disappearing thing. Yeah, it's like, how are we doing this same thing? Like, this just happened where people, um, and this is why I try to use these networks as like distribution for my podcast as opposed to places where I hang out. And I opened up Twitter and it, it recommended, it's like this, people were a bunch of mad because I guess Kim Kardashian took a picture in front of like Harvard Business School. And mm. so like, I screwed up by reading some of the responses like, she shouldn't be there. And then other people are like, well, she's richer than anybody's ever graduated from there. It's just like, oh, you guys, you bought into it. Like, she's a master at that. There's a reason why. Again, how much money does she have to spend on advertising? You're giving it to her for free and you fall mm -hmm. right into the trap. When you criticize the people who already agree with you, will still agree, right? But everybody who didn't pay attention, who didn't care, now know about it. So that's, that's how more attention is brought to that thing. And with the long tail now, right? Back when there were like three TV channels and a few movies and like didn't matter that much because you could easily see the field, right? But now there's millions and millions of creators. There's a super long tails of, of books and podcasts and websites and everything out there of artists and scientists. And so curation matters more than ever before because someone has to find the good stuff, right? Make the cream rise to the top or whatever your metaphor. And so... Everybody that's criticizing stuff is just not adding anything useful because you can always find crap anywhere, right? Because sometimes people are right to criticize something, but it doesn't add any value, right? The old 80% of everything is crap or maybe more than 80%. I don't care. But find me that, that 5%, that 1%, whatever. That's, that's all that matters. Anyway, that's my soapbox for curation. Yeah, no, what I was, what I was trying to say, what I was going to say in response to what David said, it's like one of the things I love about your work, Liberty, is like you are not afraid to talk about shows you love, movies you love, random YouTube videos, podcasts, articles, images, AI stuff. And what I like is that you aren't 
doing these sort of like studious takedowns of some company, you know? And I know there's like a place for that, by the way. There is a place for, I don't know, investigating Theranos, right? We should have room in the public culture for that because there's an important check against like the worst kinds of behavior. You think about Bernie Madoff, you think about Great Theranos, point. you think about... I don't think those things are the same at all from no, what not. we see, they're right? Not, Most no, no, things no. are social yeah. signaling. It's trying yeah. to raise your social status by lowering one of the top dogs down, right? You, That's you right. You try to attach yourself to someone who has more status, like Joe Rogan or Elon yep. Musk, and then you put yourself above them by saying that they're crap, right? That's totally different from finding fraud. That's right. And I would say like John Carreyrou, who did the bad blood stuff, like we're talking about a reporter who spent years of his life, put himself at risk to do that story, right? So we're talking about something different. But here's what I would say. What is interesting to me is that that X.com bank fraud is to X.com the same way the Cybertruck window breaking was to the Cybertruck, right? <laughs> think about think about that for a second. He's on stage. Reference. They throw the brick. The window cracks. I think Elon said, like, shit or something like on stage or whatever. <laughs> like, or some yeah, sort of That wasn't supposed to happen. I think that wasn't supposed, supposed to happen. And then they did it again, and it cracked even more, right, or whatever it was. And I think the week after they reported that, like, Cybertruck sales were through the roof. And no consumer who was going to buy one was looking at it saying, oh, I'm really worried about what happens when a brick goes through the window and what if it breaks? They were just like, no, that like I saw it because of the bad news, but I'm staying because the thing looks so interesting to me and I want to get it. So I, th- I think you're 100% right that like perversely negative press can rebound to somebody's benefit or a product's benefit. But I would say characterologically, the more interesting thing to me has been kind of like understanding that to do this kind of work, meaning maybe startups and probably a lot of other kinds of creative work is to be discounted, criticized, like attacked, like all those things. And I know the volume's gotten louder, but my hope is that like people see that even this insanely successful multi-decade business, like this with PayPal, began as an exercise of them being laughed out of rooms for venture capital, being called one of the 10 worst business ideas of 1999, almost going under in 2000, cycling through CEOs, having to deal with the aftermath of September 11th, just again and again, and facing it really personally. Like they were, you know, like there were a bunch of things that happened that were pretty personal where people were attacked. You know, I don't want to say this, but it's sort of like that. I think that just at this point comes with the territory, right? It is actually one of the reasons why I think I admire entrepreneurs so much. Because when you are an entrepreneur, you are by definition facing off against an income. I mean, it's like, unless you have a truly path-breaking brand spanking new idea, but those are rare, you are almost always facing off against an incumbent or the government or some force that wants to destroy you, and they'll do anything to destroy you, right? eBay tried to destroy them, right? It's such a good point. It's like the intelligence may be necessary, but without the persistence, it doesn't get you there. It would have been so easy to quit so many times. And there are so many... People that may be as smart out there who tried to starting a business, but they just quit long before they got any traction. I think that goes back to your point about like picking. They, they all quit. Everybody quit. <laughs> yeah. I told you this. Look, look. This is why this dude. I I say this over and over again. I've told you this before, Liberty. I don't know if I told Jimmy this, but like listeners can't see the the screen. There's a reason I'm showing them my lock screen on my cell phone. It's like that's Ernest Shackleton. How many times do you look at your phone a day? Probably at least 100, right? So 100 times, maybe more than that. 200 times a day, I see Ernest, old, tired. He's got snow and ice in his beard. And the only thing I think of is his family motto, buy endurance, we conquer. And it's just like, David, you're going to want to quit. Don't fucking quit. You'll just Mm. win as a, like, I can win through attrition. Like how many podcasts are going to be around and unbroken for 20 straight years? And what would the audience size look like if that just keeps compounding? And I do think that's a fantastic point that Liberty made. It's just like, there's so many times when you're reading Jimmy's book, it's like, 
how have they not given up? Like, how is this possible? How could there's like another? You you talk about platform risk. It's like ninety something percent of their business, I think, is coming from eBay at that point. Like, there is no PayPal if eBay successfully eliminates PayPal. You um you talked about like the guerrilla marketing tactics on the MySpace and YouTube, which was an excellent story. This is why I think you should have your own podcast too. It's like from the cutting room floor. That's a great. That's a great story. <laughs> so, but I think of like one of my favorite ideas in the book was when they're at like that conference, eBay conference, and Meg Whitman is talking, and they go and they give out. I forgot, like uh, like you could win cash or something like that if you put on the shirts. And so Meg Whitman gets up, and Jimmy, tell me if I got this wrong. She gets up and goes to the keynote, and she's staring out, and all she sees is PayPal shirts. <laughs> That is like genius level jujitsu guerrilla marketing shit if I've ever heard it. Can we talk about the other genius thing they did to not allow eBay to kill them when they were doing the IPO? Jimmy, do you want to tell a story? The Reed Hoffman. Yeah. Reed Hoffman. Reed. That, oh my God. That, that's it's some, a great that's some story. 4D chess right there. Yeah, no, the cool, the coolest part about that is so much time had passed that, like, they actually sometimes, it's really funny that we're talking about this because all these stories now are flooding back to me, not just the stories in the book, but the way it was delivered to me in interviews. And what would happen is I had some nugget of, like, something I knew, right? Like how they defeated Visa and MasterCard and ran an end around them or how they ran an end around eBay. And I would say it to the person because I, like, knew the fact because I had some piece of paper or email or something and they would like laugh they would be like oh man like it was like the way the story would start was with a chuckle and one of the stories i heard was from reed hoffman and it began with a chuckle so just to take listeners who haven't read the book to give them the 15 seconds that help for context paypal finds success on an auction website that was pretty young back then called ebay ebay hadn't figured out its payment system paypal became a perfect fix for that payment system but the problem is paypal isn't owned by ebay there's some third-party payment system it, the equivalent uh, sort of analogy would be like if you owned the cash registers at target for some reason and target didn't own those registers and you made money every time target did a sale that is paypal <laughs> right that's paypal not gonna be it's, out so, cra- it's, it's yeah. so crazy that, that it's so happens. crazy right and then it becomes a thing but part of what happens is it when they succeeded in a when they captured a hundred percent or not a hundred but eighty plus percent of the surface area on a small website not a but a medium-sized website they could expand to the rest of the internet all right fast forward ebay doesn't like this state of affairs they have a parasite like le- leeching away money right tapeworm <laughs> And what they did was they did various things to try to shut it down and monkey with the site, throw sand in the gears of PayPal, find various things. Then they sort of, there's another strategy, which was like, well, what if we just buy them? So there are all of these negotiations. There's sort of four separate formal and a bunch of informal, but four separate formal negotiations for eBay to acquire PayPal. And the problem is there's a lot of bad blood and there's a lot of like egos involved in this. And there's a lot of personal things. It's not just math. It's not just like, oh, here's your value. Here's the check. It's much more complicated than that. The executives don't really like each other. The cultures aren't a great fit. There, There is, though, this problem of PayPal in realizing that they want to go public. They also realize that if eBay comes out and says, look, their entire business is dependent on us. And if they go public and we decide to flick the off switch, they're done. If eBay comes out with a statement like that, PayPal's IPO becomes a big problem. And this is not like a bumper crop time for IPOs. They are one of the first IPO. They're the first to file after September 11th. They're only the second IPO after September 11th. And we're coming out of two years of the dot-com bubble bursting. So like not a great time, right? So what happens, and this is like a genius move, is Reed Hoffman, basically, as I understand it, Reed Hoffman and Peter Thiel and a few of the other executives are like, look, if we're mid-negotiation with eBay to acquire us, they can't comment publicly. Like, they wouldn't be allowed to talk to the press because it would be breaking both the 
formal and informal rules of an acquisition. You're not allowed to like go badmouth the person you might acquire in the press. Plus, it'd be really yeah, stupid. Try to lower their prices, right? It would be exactly. And so Reed begins effectively a fictitious acquisition process with eBay so that he muzzles them while the company is going public. When he described it to me, he was like, yeah, like I would go into these meetings and I would sort of like feign interest and like play, you know, to do this thing. And then he said, you know, he said, he's like, I did have to get assurances from our board that if they came back with a high enough offer, we would have to say yes, because it would be really bad for us if we didn't. But they never got to that place. And he, he basically would just extend the negotiating window like as far as they could go up through Valentine's Day, which was the day they went public. He was like, I just extended it. And then, then he said, Meg Whitman called him and said, what if we offered you? And then there was a dollar figure that would have made sense. And Reed had to say, you know, we're about to go public. I'll just we'll talk after the IPO. <laughs> and what timing. it did was it made sure that nobody from eBay, at least in public and in the press, was going to knife PayPal. And it was this like unbelievable. I mean, if you think about like what that involved, like lawyers and papers and meetings and CEOs, like that was genius. It was so smart to do that. But there were a number of these kinds of guerrilla tactics. That was one of my favorite ones. Because I remember Reed got really animated, wonderfully animated while he was talking about it. Because I think in the end, they realized, they look back on it and they're like, wow, that was the most absurd thing. Like We essentially created an acquisition process when we knew that all we were going to do was go public and then wait for them to acquire us later. There's so many times when I was talking about the book publicly, and I was like, you're reading the book, I'm like, that's just one smart thing after another. I think that is one of the greatest endorsements of actually picking up the book and reading it. Not only like understand the story of a very important company and that did help shape Silicon Valley, just like the subtitle says, but it's like, it's going to make you think. It's like, do I think creatively like that when I'm solving problems? I would have never thought about, hey, let's give people cash to wear shirts so they realize how important we are to the platform. I wouldn't have thought of like, hey, we have a giant risk. We're in our quiet period. We can't come out and defend ourselves because we're about to IPO. How do we get to make sure the, the platform that we, we built our company on top of to not say anything, to wreck this? Like they're just unbelievably creative, creative and intelligent ways that are just not straightforward. I think just constantly exposing yourself to this form of creative problem solving will cause you to think like, wait a minute. I have a bunch of unsolved problems in my life. I haven't been able to solve them because maybe I'm thinking like too straightforward or too inside the box. Like what would they do if they were me? A cool thing in the book is that it's interesting to see what changes, right, with these people, but some things don't change so much. There's a ton of description of Elon that's like, it could be from today, right? They talk about how like he's a great salesman. He described like what he's seeing over the horizon and he's great at getting people to buy into that. And like some of it is true and some of it like he may describe his product as his vision is, is there, but the product's not quite there yet, right? The early days of X.com, it was it was describing this this financial thing with everything under the sun, but the product was basically really basic. There are parts where it talks about how like Elon was constantly like sleep deprived and like being really hard and like driving people really hard and, and talking about how they have to work all the time, sleep at the office. All that stuff is like we hear these stories about Twitter today, right? So some things some things don't change about these people. It's interesting to know where that came from, where they had to do that. And that's what they learn, right? That's how they learn what a company is. Even if Twitter isn't a startup, he kind of brought that forward the rest of his life. Yeah, I would say that when people use, like, they make fun of the phrase maniacal urgency, like, that he used to describe Twitter, right? I think in some company-wide email, he had sent out a note saying, like, I expect people to operate with maniacal urgency. Or no, no, he said, I myself operate with maniacal urgency. Like, this book is 400 pages of maniacal urgency, right? <laughs> it is mainlining maniacal urgency. It is 
I think one of the things, and David could comment more on this, I was going to say you don't have many advantages if you're a startup, but I would say like you're almost entirely disadvantaged, right? But one of the advantages you have is speed, the ability to move very, very quickly and to create artificial pressure, meaning your employees just sort of expect that they're going to work all the time. They expect that this is sort of life or death. You don't know that the next quarter your shareholders are going to give you more money. You know, there's sort of like all these things that you just take for granted if you're in a bigger institution. And I think one of the things that you see in this story is like it and it's something that again we miss because it's not paid attention to engineers at this company earlyx.com appreciated working for a ceo who was technical and they appreciated working for a ceo who's going to work super 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 hard seven days a week he was not the person in a suit in fact he sort of was the opposite of that person he was not the person that was above playing video games he was not the person you know there was sort of like this quality where he i had multi, and this is by the way this is not my interpretation this is what people told me during my interviews they said we appreciated working for him because he put as much pressure on himself as he put on us so yes was it hard yes but he was hard on himself too and that mattered a great deal and so it didn't matter for example that you know he had he had, had an eight figure exit could have retired. Like it was all sorts of things that like he could have done whatever he wanted, but he was in the X.com, this small crummy office, making it work side by side. And I think you're right to identify that this is a character trait that has stood the test of time. I think the other thing is as the startup world has gotten, let's call it more professionalized, there is a way in which we still have to appreciate that these are like underfunded entities taking on bigger Goliaths in their industry, trying to change something, trying to scale something. And it is going to be messy and around the clock. And there's not a kind of normal cadence. And, you know, PayPal obviously captures one version of that, but it's not the only one. Like David probably comment on like it's every it's a story of every startup, right? But what you identified is something interesting, which is there are certain kinds of people with a certain kind of energy that can be like the battery that powers that ecosystem. Elon is one of those people. And I think it's why if you were to ask about the work environment at early Tesla, early SpaceX, and now Twitter, it's going to look a lot like these PayPal years, right? Because the only thing you have is the ability to move super quickly against Visa and against MasterCard, or in the case of Tesla, against Ford and against General Motors, or in the case of SpaceX, against Boeing and Raytheon, right? And so like in a world in which you as a startup are always fighting incumbents, if your CEO is not going to work at a breakneck pace and really try to make the thing live, what hope would you have that the company would? You did a fantastic job describing one of the, the main advantages that startups have, which is speed. The other one you also mentioned in your book is focus. They only thought about PayPal. eBay thought about eBay. And then also, I forgot what their version of PayPal was, but you talked Bill about it in the book. It's like Bill Point. Like they're developing Bill Point, but it's not the only thing they're working on every day. And so it's like if you're going to part-time something where this entire group of highly driven, intelligent fanatics, that's all they're thinking about. It's like you can't possibly think that you're going to win that competition. So I think speed and focus is something that, again, is one of the only advantages because it's certainly not resources, certainly not money, no. certainly not experience. Actually, let's, let's talk about that because you mentioned that earlier. And when I'm rereading my highlights and rereading the book before we sat down to talk, I was fascinated by the prehistory of PayPal, Right. You have, a, you have just a, f a few sentences here that's way before they even merge, if I'm not mistaken, with that Confinity merges with X.com. And this is the Confinity side. And you wrote, this effort arguably represented PayPal's earliest iteration. The company now boasted an angel investor with a closet office, that's Peter Thiel, 
Now, you know, that is multi-billionaire, you know, almost like head of state level assets, Peter Thiel. Go back 25 years. He's working out of a closet, guys. Okay? A closet. So he's like, the company now boasts an angel investor with a closet office, Thiel. A CTO without air conditioning, Levchin. And a CEO with a 2,100-mile commute. And that was uh, Powers. And when I got to that section of the book, one of my favorite collection of writing that has been eliminated from the internet, but you can download PDF is Mark Andreessen used to be this very prolific blogger. Huh. And so there's like this 200 page blog archive that's available on his venture capital firms, A16Z's website. If you think if you just Google P Mark a blog archive, you'll find the page. And I've read it. I've done a podcast on it. I'm going to reread it because it's like 200 pages of like this guy's been, you know, he just had a very unique set of life experiences and he writes about all the stuff he learned. And so I'm sitting here reading the prehistory of PayPal. I'm like, that's fucking crazy that this is going to turn into what it's going to turn into. And I was like, it is crazy, but it's not novel. We see this over and over again. And so Mark has this great quote. I'm going to read you guys. And this is Mark writing. He says, I'm a firm believer that most people who do great things are doing them for the first time. And then he talks about how he chooses people he would hire for if he has a project, right? I'm a firm believer most people who do great things are doing them for the first time. I'd rather have someone all fired up to do something for the first time than someone who's done it before and isn't that excited to do it again. You rarely go wrong giving someone who is high potential the shot. Hmm. Wow. And that's PayPal's story, right? The bankers yeah. were freaking out at the IPO because when they published the filings, all the executive of the average age was like late 20s. And to the average investor, oh, they need more experienced people. But the reason why they succeeded is because they didn't know it couldn't be done, right? That's kind of like the other part is the ambition, right? Even at, at Zip2, Musk was like, this is going to be the next Yahoo, right? They ended up making all their money from selling backend stuff to newspapers, but his ambition was much bigger. And then X.com, his ambition was to be like everything about money, right? Even stocks and indexes and trading mutual funds and like checking accounts and he wanted he always had this ambition and even if you don't realize the full ambition just keeping your mind open that you can go there well maybe you find something that works well if from the start you had been holding yourself back and trying to only think of realistic things and of, of small things i don't know that it, it seems to lower the chances that you'll hit on something that's product market fit at some point look it's been written about by obviously people like mark andreessen and and others but it's funny, you just, once you're in an industry, certain things become shibboleths, like you can't question them, you know, you sort of have this, like, oh, we've just always done it this way, right? And this is like actually kind of a trope with startups, it's nothing we need to drill down on too much. But the point, I think, is when Peter Thiel and Max Levchin are meeting with somebody who's like a credit card industry expert, it's like one of my favorite little moments, <laughs> and they're asked, like, Hey, so, you know, you guys have all these users, but how are you going to deal with chargebacks? And Max and Peter, two very bright people, are like, what are chargebacks, right? <laughs> and, and then later, they reflected and Reed reflected this as well. He said, you know, if we had known how hard this was going to be, and if we knew everything, we probably wouldn't have done it. Like, mm. the truth is, it was so hard, and we were so naive, right, about how hard it was going to be, that we just never would have done it. If somebody had said, here's all the things you're going to face, and like, here's all the things in the industry you need to know about, we'd have been like... Forget that. And by the way, I, I think he means that literally, not metaphorically, because there's so much regulation in the financial services industry that like they wouldn't necessarily have wanted to wade through like a thicket of regulations to build a payment processing company. And so my thought is that part of what happens if you're trying something for the first time is you just get to dispense with a lot of that stuff. And Silicon Valley is great at that. What Silicon Valley is great at 
is like taking an industry that everybody knows about, rockets, and saying, we're going to do this for the first time. And if we were starting for, you know, they call it first principles thinking, but let's use David's phrase, which is like, if you can come to this thing for the first time, look at it and say, well, this doesn't make any sense. And this doesn't make any sense. And every time we use a rocket, we spend like multiple millions of dollars. Why can't we just make them reusable? The laws of physics suggest we can. Let's figure out how to do that. In a similar way, what happened in this situation, this is actually a funny comment that somebody made to me. They said, you know, PayPal should never have existed. Visa and MasterCard should have just gotten together and built PayPal or like Visa, MasterCard, and American Express because all they needed to do was just provide base level credit card funding, like to serve as a master merchant. And they could have just built the master merchant. They could have just built PayPal, but they didn't because it, they thought, oh, these small dollar Liberty's never going to want to send me $5. That's never going to happen. Like, And even if he did, the, the reward isn't worth the risk because there's just too much potential for fraud. That was the niche that PayPal occupied. So what wasn't some sort of big sparkling insight. It was just they looked at this thing fresh and they said, well, we could manage the risk. Like we could figure out how to figure that out. It goes back to the speed, right? It's like, I think Visa and MasterCard would build PayPal. But by the time they get to that point, it already exists. Someone yeah. much faster than them has seen the opportunity. I've seen the internet growing by a thousand percent a year or something, saw where it's going and then build it. And then by the time the big giants wake up, well, it already exists. So now they have to deal with it. And you know, it's a good idea because in present day, there's a million ways for you to send somebody money. You know, you could do Zelle, you can do Cash App, you could do Venmo, you could do like this peer-to-peer, like let's use the internet to send each other money. Like you look back and like, how the hell wasn't that built into it? I think you said in the book, or maybe it was Peter Thiel was talking about, it's like we knew it was like a 20X improvement or a 10X improvement because it's like people were sending checks. It's like, imagine selling a beanie baby and be like, all right, <laughs> send me a check 20 days from now or 10 days from now. It's like, this is so stupid. How do you know if you're actually going to get paid? And then and once you have the check, like there's no guarantee there's actually money in this account. Like, why would you do something like this? I remember doing this. I sent a money order to someone to buy a stereo amp back in the day. Yeah, it was terrible. That's the thing, right? It's like all these nerds, they were early users of all these technologies, right? The suits at Visa and MasterCards were probably not using eBay back in those days, right? The internet was so not user-friendly. The early days, you had to install your TCP IP protocols. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the computer you bought wasn't even set up to go online, like out of the box, right? So all these people saw all of these problems that they could try to solve much, much earlier than most other people. Yeah, and I think the other part about it is once they had a foothold, the incumbents decided to attack And then they got their competitive juices going. So I think that's like a big part of the story as well. You know, once you sort of establish your little part of the map, everybody's like, oh, now that's an opportunity. So let's go pounce, you know, and that actually led to a lot of work to defeat eBay, hold off the credit card associations, delicate dance with Wall Street, right? But I think that that's like a part of this too, meaning in a world in which I think like work life has generally improved I think it would be a mistake to assume that hard work is not a part of building a startup. I had a venture capitalist, and I won't say his name, but a pretty prominent venture capitalist say to me, thank you for not ignoring the fact that long hours and late nights and weekends were a part of PayPal's success. And he said, it's really important because he's like, I was getting knocked on on Twitter whenever I talk about the hard work that's involved, right? But the hard work was the difference maker in a lot of these situations. Let me give a very specific example. One of the things I did was I always tried to interview people who are not famous and not in the news. 
I interviewed a lot of customer service reps. So like customer service reps are awesome to interview because their stories are legendary, right? And so I found all these people living in Omaha, which is where PayPal's customer service outfit was. And I just like tracked them down using like just Google searches. And I would call them, leave voicemails, send emails. And enough of them responded to me. For anybody who's going to do a project like this in the future, just make sure you don't only focus on people in the boardroom. You got to go top to bottom in a company. Everybody, people are there for a summer, people are there for 20 years. So I find these customer service people. And one of them says to me, you know, Palo Alto always impressed us, meaning Palo Alto, like the tech and engineering people and the business people. And I said, well, ma'am, could you tell me more about that? Like why? That's a very specific thing to say. Like, you know, I, like, I want to learn from you and your experience. Why did Palo Alto impress you? And she said, you know what would happen? A customer would write in with a complaint and we would get on the phone like at like maybe 6 p.m. with Palo Alto and we would identify what the problem was. And we would get an email at like one or two o'clock in the morning and they had fixed it. And she said, this happened over and over again. And she said, it also happened internally, meaning if we had an issue with one of our tools, like one of the tools to detect fraud or something, we would say something 24 hours later, somebody would fix it. She said, it was amazing. We just had never seen anything like that before because at other companies, you'd have a process and you'd have a plan, you'd build it in your roadmap and all these things. And they said, it, what happened here was it fixes what happened overnight. And one of the people on the product team identified to me, they said, you know, how do you think we won over all these eBay sellers? We won them over because the moment they complained about something, we fixed it right away, even if it meant staying up all night to do it. And so I do think of like, would Visa do that? Absolutely not. Like, it's just no planet in which that's going to happen as quickly. But I think it's really important because it, it ties together the operational tempo you need, along with like a commitment to hard work, because it doesn't happen magically at one o'clock in the morning. It's teams of engineers that stay up and fix things until one or two o'clock in the morning. And it is the only advantage you have. And so I think there is this kind of idea that somehow this can all be like, this can all happen like a Zen garden, right? Like it can all happen. We can all like sleep. Everybody can like work exactly the same. And like there could be, and I think there's room for that. Like, it's not that this culture should be the way every company works, but I think if you are at a startup and you are working hard, hard, you should take some heart from the fact that like, that's actually how these lasting companies come to be, right? And there is simply no, in some ways, no other way to do it. Can I say something about that, if you guys don't mind real quick? Because it's been on my mind a lot. And it's something I'm trying to do in my own work. And it's going to tie to something that Elon said in the book. But like, I think another uh, asset that you could have if you're whatever, it doesn't matter what you do, right? I was just, I just saw this uh, clip of like Tiger Woods talking about like, if I'm playing, I'm here to win. Like he's got a level of intensity. I go back and like, I'm obsessed with young Jeff Bezos, right? Hmm. Where um, I just read his shareholder letters for the third time, just did another episode on it. It's like, you watch his videos when he's like, you know, 35, 37, 38, the very beginning of Amazon, maybe a little younger. And what he'll do is like, you see the manifestation of how important it is to him through his intensity. He'll like look at the interviewer and in many cases he like leans his body forward, literally his eyes like, we're going to be the most customer centric company in the world. We're going to be obsessed mm. with customers. It's like, this guy's going to fucking kill me. <laughs> like, he is crazy. And I'm trying to do this where like, I think like energy, enthusiasm, intensity, mm -hmm. I think those are like very attractive to other humans. And if you can show people that you really give a shit about what you're doing, they're more liable to like join you in your mission or at least help you in the way they can. And you have this great line in the book where this is before the merger between X.com and Confidity. It's an email exchange, if I'm not mistaken. And they're talking about like, oh, Elon, you're not like, you know, like you're too distracted or whatever. And his response is crazy, right? And this is how I feel about podcasting, where it's like, I refuse to do work on anything else but my podcast, right? And he goes, I think you may have misread me a little. My mind is always on x.com by default, even in my sleep. 
I am by nature obsessive compulsive. What matters to me is winning and not in a small way. So it's like, that's an email from Elon. This is a video you can watch from Jeff Bezos. It's the same idea. It's like, I am fu- I am alive. I, I mentioned this, uh, I said this on a podcast recently, and I didn't even know I was going to say it, right? Because it's like a lot of my podcasts is improvised. I'm trying to approach life and walk around in life like a human exclamation point. And I don't even know where that came from. It just came out. That's I was great. like, oh, I kind of I am doing that. Succeeding. Yeah, but I kind of am doing that. It's just like people, they respond to the energy and the emotion and the intensity that you have. And I do agree, like in the beginning of companies and even later, like it talked about like Sam Walton, a decade into Walmart was working unbelievably long hours way after he had to financially. Now he took a lot of breaks too. That's why I think you, you don't see a lot, these, especially in the founders. It's like Sam's up, you know, before the sunrise. <laughs> His first, he talks about some of the best thinking time he ever had. He'd get to the office like four in the morning because nobody's there. And so he's like two hours of nobody bothering him, right? Which I think is very important. But then also throughout the day, like he's hunting with his dogs or he's bringing his tennis racket or whatever. It's like, he might have a long day, but he's got blocks in between there where he's giving himself a break. I think a lot of entrepreneurs understand like, you have to give time for your brain to like actually think about what's going on. You can't just work, 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 work from your eyes open to the time your eyes uh, fall asleep. I also think that one, I don't think you should talk about that publicly on Twitter because that's not the right audience. You're going to have a lot of <laughs> feed. You're going to have a lot of blowback, just like your investor friend was saying. But what I would say is, in many cases, though, I think when people listen to it, it's like, oh, we're not glorifying this behavior because in many cases, like when you read these biographies of people that accomplish great things, it's like. They optimized for that one thing in their life. Yes. And it's going to be the detriment. You cannot have a relationship with other humans, right? Like, I am super into my podcast. I spend, I work seven days a week on it. I spend a lot of time on it, right? But I, I'm married. I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to be a good dad. I'm going to take care of my health. I am going to have fun. So it's like, it's not that I work on the, the podcast 100 hours a week, but I am super into it when I am working on it. But I understand partly because I've read so many of these biographies, like, oh, I, I want to be as, as good as I can at my work. But I also want to be a complete human. And Mm. in many cases, if you're just going to be working from the time your eyes open to the time your eyes close, you're not going to be a complete human. You're going to be most likely wealthy, most likely very financially successful. But I think you're going to get to the end of your life unless you're a psychopath and you're like, damn, I should have built better relationships with other humans because I think we are instinctively, even somebody as introverted as me and introverted as Liberty, like you instinctively need human relationships, whether it's your marriage, your kids. You know, one of my favorite things in the book that I wrote down was what you said. I loved the the letter you wrote your daughter at the uh, very yeah. end of the book. It's That's great. fucking, I told you it made my wife cry. Right. When I got to that point, I go, read this, honey. And she started crying. And that's how you know you're a good writer, dude. I mean, I think you already know you're a good writer. But I just want to... Uh, Thank you. I, I, this pops in my mind. I wasn't expecting to talk about it. But one of my favorite things that you said in the book, it's also a story of... You told the story earlier. It's like they went on to, to build companies together. They went to each other's marriages. They're having dinner parties, all this other stuff. But you're giving advice to your daughter, who's really young at the time. And you said your life will be shaped by the things that you create and the people you make them with. And I think that you're speaking to what makes us human. It's that's, a, that's the relationships with other humans that no matter what is very, very important to getting to the end of your life and actually saying, damn, I enjoyed that. I have one shot in my life and I enjoyed it because not only through my creative outlet, through my work, but because of the relationships I've made with other people. I've heard you say this, David. I don't know where, but when you talk about how only founders under, really understand other founders, right? This intensity... And I guess we can coin a term, right? I think we have to look for the Ed Thorpe balance because it's possible to go too far. 
But even someone like Ed Thorpe, I think he went really far. He just made some trade-offs to optimize also for family and all that. But even at that level, I think this kind of intensity is also a filter, right? And so it helps with when I meet people like you guys, like I feel... We understand each other on many levels, right? But even in a company like PayPal, you read in the book the stories of people, like they just go to visit there. And sometimes it was an interview. Sometimes they didn't know it was an interview, but it turned into one, right? And they visit there and it's so intense, right? And it's so like mad puzzle and they're seeing people like sleeping on the floor and like people knew what they were getting into mostly, right? Maybe some didn't, but I think a bunch of people who are not looking for this type of life, like it was clear that this wasn't for them. But some people seek that stuff out. Some people seek out intensity, right? You read about these, I don't know, David Goggins, or some people like they'll jump out of planes to be uh, uh, firefighters in the, in the middle of nowhere and the, the Navy SEALs. And some people like that type of intensity and get rewards from it. Not just financial, but what we were talking about, right? This intensity that's near combat, that's where you, you make like the, the band of brothers type of friends, right? And the stories that you tell for the rest of your life, right? It's kind of like the equivalent of high school for some people, right? Where they always try to relive that and they stay friends with the same people forever and they retell the same stories. Well, PayPal was this kind of like founder, entrepreneur, high school type of, of situation. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with the, the, the metaphor, but it feels like it's a filter on both sides. And as long as you keep it very clear what type of company you're running, I think you're going to attract the right type of people and the people who wouldn't fit there will naturally gravitate towards like, I don't know, like going to work for McKinsey or Microsoft or some big bank or something. Like Elon had, had a lot to say about big banks, not <laughs> being able to innovate and move fast and all that type of stuff, right? This type of huge difference in speed and ambition and innovation and, and like they talk about how they've learned to, when there's a problem, they don't look for an existing solution. They learn to invent a new one, right? This type of mindset isn't common elsewhere, and it must be very, very attractive for the right kind of people. That's why I think you shouldn't talk about it on Twitter. Because <laughs> like, first of all, like being an entrepreneur is like you're crazy. Just go get a job at a big company. Like, why are you doing this? So it's a tiny percentage of the population in general. And then inside of entrepreneurship, you have a you know even a smaller subset that work like Elon does. And so it's like then you're broadcasting this message out to you know 99% of people that don't fit into who you're targeting. And it's not like you have to tell those people that are going to do this to do it. They already know that like they're going to do it on their own. No one had to tell Elon, hey, you should uh, work really hard. You should sleep at Zip2's office. Like, There's no point in engaging this. And I see this over and over again on Twitter specifically. Where it's like people argue. Every few weeks, things go viral. It's like, let's argue about how much we should be working. Who cares? Just do whatever you want to do. Like, I don't ask people. Have I ever emailed or texted you guys? Hey, guys, how many hours should I work this week? <laughs> it's like, what the fuck are you talking right. about? Like, these discussions are stupid. It's a waste of time. Just do whatever you want to do. And if you need to, like, read other people's opinions on what you should be working, then just know that you're most likely not the personality type to be an entrepreneur to begin with. The one amendment I would have to that, though, is I think that sometimes I often think I'm writing books like Founders for somebody who is at the precipice of their decision making. Maybe they're just about to leave college or they're just transitioning from high school to college or they've just left college and they're in, like, a job that doesn't make them particularly happy. And what I don't like is when we look at people, let's say, let's take Steve Jobs, because this would be a funny thing, but it's like, it would be ludicrous to be like, man, really wish Steve Jobs would have had more work-life balance. <laughs> like, like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I'm wonderfully, I'm so happy that he was insanely imbalanced, right? And I don't know fully what drama that caused. I mean, we know a little bit, but what, what drama that caused in the rest of his life. But thank goodness that he was wonderfully, totally crazily imbalanced. And he attracted people, even like Tim Cook, 4 a.m. every day, seven days a week, Apple, right? Johnny Ive, like totally obsessive designer types, right? Like, thank 
goodness that there are those imbalanced people. So what I'm, what I also want to do, it's sort of what like Tyler Cowen's been doing with his book Talent, like sound a note in defense of total absorption, hard work, ingenuity, and initiative, and the willingness to grind. Because quiet quitting shouldn't be the new normal, right? In fact, I think it's actually kind of sad. The fact is, work can be a vital place. Like it can be a place where you come. And I mean, I read this and wrote about it. Like it can be a place where you show up. And like the people around you, you're just like, boy, I really better like step up my game. This is like, these people are crazy. And I think we shouldn't, just as we shouldn't make people feel bad if they decide they want work-life balance, we also shouldn't make the people who are imbalanced feel bad, right? Like if you're a founder and you are crazy obsessed, I kind of want you to feel amazing about that because I think that that energy is, is hard. It's hard on the best of days. And people won't get you. Your friends won't understand you. You'll have challenges in your relationships. But nobody would look at, again, Steve Jobs as a, as a canonical example. But like, you know, let's say Sarah Blakely, early days of Spanx. Was she working all the time? Yes. Is was Spanx a hugely successful consumer product in a very competitive industry with a lot of sharks and pressures? Yes. Would I have wished upon her, like, man, you should really take more more Fridays off for Saturdays? No, of course, of course not. Thank goodness someone is willing to go through what they go through to build the things they want to see in the world. And by the way, it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't have to work for everybody. I am not saying it's a prescription for everyone's life. What I want is for someone listening who does live that way to be okay with living that way, Mm. to not feel like, oh, you know, the rest of the people I know go out on Friday nights. I don't really go out on Friday nights. Is that weird? Should I feel bad about that? No, absolutely not. Because like, there are people like you in the world. You may need to work harder to find them. You may need to find solace and kind of the humanity that David was talking about. You may need to find that humanity in other things, or you may need to delay those kinds of human connections for a little while. But I do want to sound a note in defense of the obsessive. It's what you said, David, like you just know you are going to kill yourself to make the podcast, not at the expense of your other relationships, but you're going to make your podcast so successful. You're going to do it for a long time. Any person looking from the outside in might be like, David, you're crazy. It like irritates me when I hear that because I'm like, from where do you think great like things happen? You know, like one of my, you know, Hamilton, obviously super popular musical and everybody celebrates it. There was a video where Lin-Manuel Miranda talked about like working on a single stanza or like a single lyric for a year, like a year of finding the right <laughs> words for like one tiny section in a song. Right. And so somebody could have been like, dude, just, just like, Put it placeholder in, man. Move on. Like, or just find a good enough word, right? But do we get the magic that we get from Hamilton if somebody's willing to phone it in? I don't know. And I'm not, by the way, again, I'm not advising that everyone do this. I'm simply saying that if there's somebody in your office who is there on Friday and Saturday nights, don't tell them that they should go get a life because maybe they've like found their life's calling. Maybe this is like the thing they want to do. This is such a great point about about Hamilton, right? Because if we zoom out, we're mostly talking about business here, but this is happening everywhere, right? Am I glad that David Milch obsessed about Deadwood so much, right? So, so <laughs> there are artists out there, there are scientists, there are engineers, right? The guy who invented the first MRI machine, right? He probably wasn't working just nine to five. I don't know that, that story, but all kinds of discoveries and like great mathematicians and Einstein and all these people were not necessarily the most balanced in every other normal ways, but you don't get unusual success with normal lives, right? That's kind of the trade-off that you have to make. And as long as the people are doing it voluntarily and they get intrinsic reward from it, like, I think it's great. I think it's fine. I think the opportunity should be there, right? Look at how much fun was made of Elon when he talked about, I want Twitter to have a hardcore culture, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Was it the best way to phrase it? Was it the best way? I don't know. But 
the idea should exist, right? Some places should be places where we want people to work really hard and we want to attract these people and it's a hopped-in, right? You have a choice to come work here. For that. Like, maybe Twitter isn't the best example because it was so messy. But for a startup, when you're starting with a blank page, you can decide these types of things and try to attract these types of people. And I think it's weird too, yeah. I'm glad that we have a world where these outliers are creating most of the things we enjoy, like from art to science to medicine to technology to businesses. And I think you're glad we have books like Jimmy's where it's like you could read this and say, yes, I want that. Or you could read that like, no, I want to pick a different route. Yeah, yeah I'm glad Jimmy spent more time looking at that story than the actual time it took for the company to exist, right? Well, and you spent, and what, five, six years on the yeah, four-year six, story? Six years. And, and part of what, you know, I want to like, as we're getting to the close, is just sort of say it is interesting to me that part of what happens is that in that kind of culture of hard work, people who came in and maybe weren't like insane hard workers also leveled up their game, right? This is sort of the the Kobe effect or the MJ effect that like you did see people there all the time. So then you were there all the time and you leveled up accordingly. And so I think that's part of the getting back to Liberty's original question about nature versus nurture. You know, there was a feeling in the office that a great deal depended on the individual and on the individual's decision to work hard and do well and like try to make things happen. And I think that's like part of what these kinds of cultures do. I think it's more common, maybe it's more common for somebody to be like a superstar in a culture where like everyone's kind of checked out and then they start to like check out too, because what's the incentive for doing well if you're like in a kind of whatever. But then you have this other portrait, right? Which is a place like PayPal where like, Everyone is so good. You're like intimidated at how good they are. And so you have to be really, really, really good. I interviewed this person. This quote's not in the book, but I interviewed this guy, Ted Fong, who's on the product team. He's like, nothing was scarier to me than my one-on-ones with David Sachs, because I knew he had thought about the problem that I was like coming in with like 20 different ways. And I had to be like spot on with my analysis, my data, everything else. But he said at the end of that little meditation, he said, that fear was really good. Like I was a little bit afraid. And so I had to come in and be really excellent at what I was doing. And I heard that again and again in different dimensions of the company, that they prized that kind of excellence. And that the, because the place celebrated excellence, people became better. And I like, I like want, I, I want that for other people, right? Because I think it actually forces you, you to really, like when I write books now, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, I'm writing for David and Liberty. Like this shit better be good. Because <laughs> David's read everything, right? And like, like this stuff better be good. And I better be saying something new. My standard is high because my friends have high standards in other areas of their life. And I think a great documentary that illustrates the point that you just described is The Last Dance Mm. on Michael Jordan. Because it talks about, it's just like, even Scottie Pippen says, like, Pippen was good. He's like, playing with Michael Jordan, two things are going to happen. You're going to get better or you're going to get kicked off the team. Yep. Yep. And he had no patience. I mean, he would throw punches. He would call people out. He would, and, and there were, it was crazy. I mean, that was like one of the things that's most remarkable. I mean, I recommend that documentary to everybody. Yeah, it's great. I don't even like sports. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not a big sports. I don't sit around and watch live sports, but I watch yeah. documentaries about sports figures. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same people. When I, I did a three-part series on Larry Ellison, I read three biographies on him, and I go, oh, I realize it's like if Michael Jordan sold enterprise software, he'd be Larry Ellison. <laughs> it's like the same person. They're super competitive. They have to win at all costs. They make up fake enemies in their minds to motivate them. They burn the boats. It's like the same person. Uh, I collect funny Michael Jordan stories, and I just heard a, a new one. Stephen Jackson said on a podcast, which is fantastic, where you know I think a lot of people know that Michael Jordan owns an NBA team, and he was so disgusted with how his team was playing that they all wear Jordan brand, like his clothes, his shoes. He went to the practice, made them take off all their Jordan brand clothes. Then 
he played the starter. He took the bench. He took a bunch of people off the bench, put them on his team. He played the starters, and he waxed the starters with the bench, and he was 50. Like, he (laughs) literally, like, first of all, you come to practice, take off my clothes, and then get on the court. I'm going to kick your ass with the bench. Wow. Yes. I've heard a lot of Michael Jordan stories. I've never heard that one before. I was like, oh, my God. That is amazing. You know what? The thing I would say, because a lot of people, when they're listening to podcasts, they're like, like, well, what can I take away from something like that? And here's what I would say. This applies to me personally, but I think it probably applies for the two of you, too. Sometimes when I would, like, during the depths of my totally crazy, beautiful mind-like existence when I was writing The Founders, (laughs) one of the things I would say is, like, what if Kobe Bryant was writing The Founders? Or I would think, like, what if Michael Jordan was writing The Founders? I would ask myself this. It sounds like a ridiculous question, but I would often adopt a pose where I would say to myself, like, I'm the Black Mamba. I'm just doing biography. And it became a real vivid thing in my head. I've never actually spoken about it to anyone. And you're the only two people in the world, frankly, who I could even talk about this with and not get self-conscious. But I would ask myself, what would Kobe Bryant do? And I was like, what he would do is he would get up every day at four o'clock in the morning and he would just continue to turn pages in these emails and he would go through everything. What would Kobe Bryant do? He would email customer service reps in Omaha who nobody had ever spoken to. What would Kobe Bryant do? He'd pay $10,000 to a fact checker. Why? Because I want the facts in this book to be buttoned up. You can adopt the mannerisms or habits or sort of the way someone works and just apply it into your life with a little bit of seasoning and it will actually shift how you work. There were definitely Saturdays and Sundays where I was like saying to myself, like I would say to my, I could literally talk to myself but like, if uh, it's like a beautiful Saturday, it's like spring in New York, like all my friends are having fun and doing things. And I was like, no, like Kobe Bryant would be in the gym and this is your gym. Your gym is these old PayPal emails and you need to get through <laughs> them and you just have to keep going. And every rep matters. Every thought matters. And again, I like that's a useful tool. It's to ask yourself, like pick a person who's the best at something and say, how would they approach it? And then even create a little mantra in your head about it, right? Say to yourself, like, how would they attack this? And then you can actually visualize. Like I could, I literally could see like, well, if Michael Jordan had like this kind of access and like these tools, here's how he would do this. And he'd be a crazy person about it. I was like, that's just how I should do it. I should just do what he would do if he was in my situation. That's the role biographies play. And also, it could be fiction, too, because in the book, I watched a movie because Max Levchin had watched that crazy movie by Shimada or whatever his name is. Seven Samurai. Uh, Seven Samurai. Yeah, where he's just like, I watched it like a hundred times. And this is the roles that podcasts play for me. Obviously, some of my friends' biographies do, too. But he said, what would Shimada do? I understand how this guy thinks. I've studied how he thinks. Now I'm presented with a difficult decision. I'm running it through my own calculus. But to enhance that is like, let me ask, what would Shimada do in this situation. This is exactly what you're describing. It's like, I'm running through my own calculus, but I'm asking, it's like, if Michael Jordan was writing this biography, if Kobe's writing this biography, I like how you, you tied this all together. Where it's like, what can you get out of this podcast? What can you get out of this book? It's like, you're going to develop these models of these people that you admire, and you're going to be able to understand how they make decisions. And then once you do that, now you have a tool. They're on your shoulder anytime that you need to make a decision in your own life. That is why one of my favorite lines in, in Poor Charlie's Almanac is like, there's ideas worth billions in a $30 history book. Because you're able to think like a Steve Jobs. That's doesn't great. mean you have to, you're not building the next Apple. This is an idea still from Kobe Bryant, who just mentioned. You don't copy the what, you copy the how. It's how he played basketball, not that I'm trying to make it to the NBA. And I think that is universally applicable no matter what you're doing. And I think the other nice thing is that if you were, oh man, there's something, this is like our favorite thing to riff on, right? But <laughs> it's, it's actually the case that what's nice is you can learn these models without having to spend a lot of money and do them on the side while working 
and apply them pretty quickly and in like a low cost way, right? So like, let's like take a practical example. You're somebody that's in sales and you do X number of cold calls or emails or phone, you know, meetings every week or something. If you ask yourself, like, what would Kobe Bryant do, right? It's like, well, he would just do one more every day than he like had done that day or something. And it doesn't have to be some big, stark, dramatic change, right? It can be anything and you can apply it pretty flexibly. But the other cool thing is, you don't have to buy a book or a course or a training. If you just go on YouTube and watch interviews, you can learn about the models that they studied. You can look at the things that inspired them. And then you can, as a result of that, I would have Last Dance playing in the background when I wrote Founders. No joke. That is like, I thought about that a lot. And why? For me, it was a practical thing. There's a teamwork dynamic in Last Dance that's very cousin to PayPal. A lot of superstars, you know, Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, David Sachs, Peter Thiel, Max Lovejoy. You know, yeah. it's like there's a there's a superstar dynamic. So I always was thinking to myself, like, huh, that's really interesting. Team of real heavy hitters, and they have this other team of real heavy hitters. How do I make sure that the energy of that comes to life on the page? That's what I was trying to think about. So I would have it on all the time. But more personally, I was always thinking about like, okay, if I were writing like a book for the ages, like a dynasty level book, what would that look like? And I was like, okay, this is what I think it could be. And it was inspiring. You don't have to have it every day. You're not going to feel it every day. But I do think that like, it is useful to adopt the how, not the what, right? And sort of look at a process and say, hmm, I could do this and I could do it the way that MJ would if MJ had a podcast, <laughs> which he might, I don't know. Everybody gets to pick a standard for themselves and people who don't do it, that's still picking a standard, right? Like refusing to choose is still choosing. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, like how David said, it's not like about the specific steps, but you pick a North Star and you just decide that I want to go in that direction. And Jimmy, when you talk about like doing more for your book, right? Wanting to do more. I know you're not doing it to try to impress other people or like, it's probably more impressive to other people to have a more normal life, right? And have more normal interests or pick a more normal career path or whatever. You're doing it for yourself because you enjoy it. You enjoy the process, you enjoy the results. And ultimately it's all about like, people need to figure out like know thyself, right? Figure out what you like about this creative process and then pick what's right for you. And we have somewhat similar personalities. So we're talking about this. Someone listening may have a very different personality and I'm not telling them to do the same kind of thing, but there's something for them out there, right? Don't just go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing in your neighborhood or your family or whatever, right? Figure out like, is there a very different path that you could take that would make you, I don't know, have your more fulfilled, more like achieve more of your potential. I don't know. It's I know it sounds all very self-helpy and all that, but it's true, right? Once you decide to take more control of your life, to have more agency about all that stuff, it just becomes more fun. That stuff is fun. It's fun to learn. It's fun to explore. It's fun to meet people doing the same kind of stuff. I don't know. I, I guess this is just my plea to the listener to take this seriously, right? Well, it's not because we use names of people that seem unattainable, right? M Michael Jordan, like, no, no, no. You don't have to be Michael Jordan. You just have to be the best version of you, right? The little mini Michael Jordan that you can be, right? In your own little world, you can be a better person than you are now. And by using these people as examples and models and motivation, I think it just gets you closer to there. I think it's a fantastic place to close. Yes. Any closing words? I think we'll have to figure out the next book club. We can't wait for Jimmy's next book. So we'll have to pick something <laughs> by someone else. Maybe right. becoming Steve Jobs or something like that. I'm partial to that book, but we'll have to yeah. figure something out, guys. This this was too much fun. No, this is like, it's always a blast. And, you know, honestly, like I come out of this conversation, I'm like, I got to go work. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like ready to go like eat my Wheaties and do it. I, I think, you know, what I would say is, This is like one of the things I admire about both of you that you do very well, but it was what I would encourage sort of listeners to do as well, which is 
Like you two are like super broad-minded and read just across an array of things, right? Like in the course of this conversation, like we have talked about like financiers, space people, you know, it's like Michael Jordan, like all the other things. Like I kind of like, it's like a whole thing. I, I don't know how you guys grew up, but I grew up really nerdy, right? I like loved computers when I was a kid. And, you know, you sort of like get picked on and like things happen to you and like people make fun of you and stuff. And there's a time in your life, I think, where you look at your nerditude or like your sort of capacity for nerdiness and you're like, man, I don't know, this is like not going to help me meet girls or like whatever, right? And you sort of look down on it. I think there's less of this today, by the way, because I think like Reddit exists. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, I'm like very happy that it does. But what I would say is like one of the things I admire both of you is like you give me permission to like be a bigger nerd which is really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. Like, it's the coolest thing to have friends where, like, if I said to you right now, if I said, like, guys, I have this crazy idea. It's, like, random thing. I'm going to go read 20 books on it. You'd be like, go, man. We want to hear what happens at the end, you know? <laughs> like, like, enjoy the cave. We'll see you on the other side, right? That is, like, not a normal way most kids grow up. What I would say is to the listener, don't run away from that. Because especially, like, when you're younger, people will give you grief for it. But remember that, like, one of the moments in the book that reminds me most of David is when this person walks into Elon's bedroom. This is just around the zip two years. And this person has come from Canada. He's kind of sussing out whether he's going to join this guy, Elon Musk, that nobody knows at this company, Zip2, that nobody knows. Or actually, this is at X.com. And so he's like trying to figure out if he's going to leave Canada and come to Silicon Valley. And he walks into Elon's room, and it is piled high with books. And he remembered, he played back to me. It's like the, the book on the top. Like, there were a bunch of business entrepreneurship, but the book on the top was a biography or something of Richard Branson. And he said, I could sort of tell, like, looking around the room, like, Elon is in training. He is, like, getting himself ready for this kind of life. And I remember hearing that, and I was, like, blown away for the next three days. And I knew that was going to be in the book, that specific scene. Because this isn't accidental. It isn't accidental that he's studying from this and really going deep on these subjects. So my only kind of, like, it's not a call to action. It's more of just, like, a... A sort of pat on the back is like if you have something like that that you were super into and everyone around you thinks you're like a little nuts, just don't listen to those people. <laughs> don't listen to those people. <laughs> that's probably a good sign. That that's what you should be doing for work. Yeah. Because we live in the age of infinite leverage. Being at the extreme end of your art is very important. That's a quote from Naval Ravikant. Ah. And so, if, and if people are telling you it's like, oh, this is abnormal, that means you're genuinely or intensely interested in it. That's what you should be doing for work. You've already lessened the amount of competition you have because people are telling you, hey, this is abnormal. Therefore, that's another way of saying, hey, you have a differentiated product here. Just figure out what mm-hmm. that product is. Others have to work and you, you're just playing at it, right? You're enjoying it. Yeah. So I think this is a good place to leave it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a couple calls to action, right? First of all, go buy Jimmy's book. Maybe buy a few copies for your friends. And then after you've done that, buy his previous book on Cloud Shannon and go listen to our book club podcast on that because that was a really fun one. And Cloud Shannon is still... I'm. <laughs> This is this should be a household name. Everybody should know, like like Einstein, right? I'm the cloud channel booster. Like I want him to get much better known. And Jimmy has the the best book on it. Next thing is go subscribe to David's podcast. You're probably already doing it. Everybody's subscribed to David's podcast by now. But Everybody if you is. aren't, like he's gonna make you a better person, and he's gonna save you so much time because. As much as I try to read, like David is a machine, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, and the great thing is that David is not summarizing books. He's giving you enough. And connecting enough with other books and other things that you can decide, is this a book I want to read because I want to go deeper into that life? Or have I gotten like a lot of the value just from David and I can move on to something else? And all these podcasts add together to a much bigger sum 
because they're all connected. When I'm reading by myself, okay, I'm going to make some connections. But I haven't read all the books that David has read, and he's making the connection. So this is great value add. So do these two things, please, and have a great day, guys. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to talk to Liberty. Appreciate yeah, it. Thank you, Liberty. Bye-bye.